Well, let's get into the Word this morning. One of the things that has... uh, that, that Paul's been dealing with, and he's been talking about a lot, has been a, a adoption. He, and that's one of his themes, adopting us into the kingdom of God because we come to Christ, because we, we are, are part of God's uh, family. And adoption stories have always, uh, always fascinated me. Uh, especially since the word God, uh, you know, the word of God talks about being grafted or adopted into the kingdom of God. Uh, as I said, we become God's children, and uh, there are so many different types of adoptions out there. I mean, the primary the primary one is when a family adopts a child, um, uh, you know, either from their own country or another country. And there's times when uh, when a coach or a teacher or a Sunday school teacher or or youth pastor or, or or you know one of those figures, a father figure or a mother figure, comes along into a child's life, and they adopt a child in a sense. Teachers do this uh, all the time. Certain kids you just have a connection with, and, and you just kind of take them under your wings. Now, when you're adopted into a family, sometimes you are the same nationality. And my wife and I have had the privilege of adopting a child. Our son, Grayson, uh, other than his blue eyes, looks just like us. Same skin type, uh, you know, a lot of the same of everything. You know, actually, Lisa's dad had blue eyes, so it's not even out of the realm of possibility of him being our child in that sense. But the other side of adoption is when you don't look like your parents. You're a different nationality. Your skin color is, is different. My aunt and un- uncle have had the privilege of adopting many children over the years, and some of their children have adopted children, and what a beautiful legacy to hand down to your, to your children, to look out for those who, who, uh, who are in need of that. But if you're adopted from another country and you look different than your parents, you will inevitably, be, inevitably get the question from a friend, why don't you look like your mom? Well, a friend of mine answered the question like this, because she's a girl. See, he's a guy and he was adopted and they're like, well, why don't you look like your mom? He's like, well, she's a girl. I mean, it makes sense to me because today's scripture is all about family. What family do you belong to? What would, you know, what, what we look like, how we should act, how we see one another, how we view the world that's around us, how we view the country where we were born. It is all a, a part of the Apostle Paul's investigation of helping, you know, the people of Galatia to understand who they are. It says in in chapter 3 of Galatians 3.23, it says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, it says, "Now uh, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So last week we talked about the law. 
and we compared it to, uh, you know, training wheels on a bike. And, you know, just as training wheels are designed to give us that balance as we're going along until we get the hang of riding, you know, without them, the law was designed to give us boundaries and guidance to guide us toward Christ. In today's text, Paul is, is turning a corner now. He's changing his direction in the letter from what the law was and was not to what the coming of Christ meant for the Galatians as well for us. He begins in verse 26 with the phrase, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. I call this the amazing process of becoming a son of God. The NIV, it's translated children of God. Other translations use the phrase um, sons of God. And I like that translation, uh, translation better, sons of God. Because children of God misses the potent point of Paul's argument. In the context of that patriarchal society, there existed a definite advantage for the male children. The Apostle Paul is using this to his advantage for them to understand it. Sons were granted a unique position of honor that was not available to the daughters. They grew up under, the sons grew up under a care of a guardian that we talked about last week. When, when they become age, you know, age of an adult, they outgrow that surveillance of their guardian that helps mold them and make them. He had arrived at his original birth intention to become a man. I think the Apostle Paul wanted the Galatians to not miss that, to understand that they didn't need the law anymore, just like a young boy reaching the age of maturity didn't need his guardian anymore, the person that looked after him, that they had arrived at God's original intention for them. He had given them the honor that by faith they had become a son of God with all the privileges that sonship implies. To backstep, uh, to, to live life by rules and laws when you can live life in a family relationship with the creator of the universe didn't make sense to Paul at all. Why would you want to go back to living like a boy when you had become a man or like a son of, uh, like a son of God? Now, ladies, don't tune me out here. This applies to you as much as it does to the guys, and you will see this in the moment. Paul is, is just trying to, to, uh, f- for them to catch what he's trying to point out and the point that he's trying to make here. Paul then tells them this, uh, this amazing thing happens, and he says in verse 27, For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. The Apostle Paul has more in mind than, than a simple act of, of water baptism. Uh, you, you know, this phrase, into Christ, is one that that's, he, he often uses in most of his epistles. It implies a, a state of fellowship, a mystical union with the crucified and the risen Christ, intimacy with God, a God that sets us free of fear and guilt and the curse of the law. To be baptized into Christ is to become united with Christ with a bond that is indescribable. In fact, it, it, it's kind of a, a thing we struggle with in the New Testament. We keep trying to find ways to talk about this thing, this thing that happens to us. We call it regeneration. We call it conversion. We call it new birth. We call it new creation. We call it all sorts of things. We have all these words that we keep trying to find a way to describe this bond 
that is stronger than any other force in the universe. That makes God available to any one of us through faith. And what's an amazing thing about this is to be baptized, to be water baptized is is such a great thing to go through and to understand. In fact, one of our churches down here uh, called me up, a, a friend of mine's pastoring another church in the area, and he goes, do you have a baptismal tank, you know, that we can use outside? And I said, sure, we do. Uh, uh, you know, our tank, you know, our built-in tank leaks. So we went out and got a tank, and, and we just bring it up to the front of the sanctuary, and we put it down to the front, and we call everybody up when we do baptisms. Well, he wants to use it outside. So, in fact, today at 1 o'clock over at Prosperity Avenue Baptist Church, they're going to do a baptism. So if anybody wants to show up that, that goes to my church, go for it. What a great way to celebrate somebody entering into the kingdom of God than water baptism. That, that, that God makes available to any one of us through faith. And this union through, through baptism is so strong that when Saul is, is you know, persecuting the church, Jesus says to, to Paul, and who's Saul at the time, you are persecuting me. When you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. Because that union that is so strong that Jesus says, once you're in the hand of God, no one can pluck you out of it. No one can take you out of that hand of God. A union that is so strong that Jesus says, no matter where you go, I will never leave you or forsake you. A union that's so strong that neither death nor things on earth, nor things under the earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is a very personal union. It's a very present union. It's a very permanent union. And Paul doesn't want the Galatians to miss out on what it is that God has made available to them through Christ. Then he adds in verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ... Have clothed yourself with Christ. A son of God has the Father's image expressed through him or her. There are benefits, Paul's saying, that come with being a son, one of which is being given the same nature as the Father. We share in God's nature, just as we share in the genes and makeup of our biological parents. I have one biological son, you know, who's around nine years old, and, and he has mannerisms that mimic both my wife and I. Uh, he, he dances like my wife and I. Um, yeah, okay, we'll just leave it there. Sometimes he reminds me of my dad. I look at him, and I, I totally see my dad in him. And then sometimes I look at him, and I totally see my wife's father in him. And, and you know, with different things, the dry humor that he has and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I just look at him, he, and he mimics us. He has the mannerisms that we have. Now, my other son, he has his own mannerisms that don't come from our family. He's, he's adopted, but he reminds me of his papa. His biological family, and luckily, you know, for us, it worked out. We did an open adoption. They're involved in our lives. We go on vacation with them. They babysit and so forth, and, and it's a wonderful family. We've all become family. The funny thing is, as much as he reminds me of, of them, he does things that are just like my wife and I also, or his older brother. Well, why is that? Well, he's family, plain and simple. He's clothed himself in us. He's been around us. He acts like us because he mimics us 
and the way we act at home because he's family. This is what Paul is trying to say to us in verse 27. For all of you who were baptized in the Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Once you're a part of the family, you start to act like the family, you start to look like the family. We start to, to act and look like Christ. That's a wonderful thing. We share the spiritual nature of our Heavenly Father. To put on Christ implies making His character, His feelings, His works, His, his you know, his, all, all those things, His values, all our own. Making His priorities our priorities. If Christ is the Son of God and we have put Him on and He lives in us, we're being made to look like Him and we're being made into Him in a sense. We're being brought into this family, this one big, beautiful family of, of different skin colors and different types of people and different personalities. You know, we all totally look different because we all have a bit of our own nature in us, which God gave to us. And it's a great thing that God gave us our own nature, but it is blended with this new family because the Holy Spirit lives in us and God views us as his sons and daughters. In other words, to be clothed with Christ is to act like God's family. The habits, the mannerisms, the values of God's family. You know, one of the, one of the great preachers of our time is a guy named Fred Craddock. Craddock was lecturing at Yale University, and he told a story of going back to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. He wanted to take a short vacation with his wife. Life was really busy, and, and he just wanted to get away with just him and his wife and enjoy a weekend and, and, and just get out of all the hoopla of people coming up to him and all that kind of stuff. So, so they were eating in a restaurant, a, you know, a really nice, fancy restaurant, really quiet. They were kind of in the corner, and they were just enjoying each other's company. And while waiting for their food, they noticed a distinguished white-haired gentleman walking around. He was moving from table to table, saying hello to the guest. And he said to his wife, man, I hope he doesn't come over here. I just wanted to have a quiet dinner. But of course, the man, what does he do? He comes to the table. And when he got there, he said, well, where are you folks from? Craddock said, Oklahoma. And the guy was like, oh, that's a splendid, splendid state. And, and what do you do there, sir? And he responded, well, I teach homiletics at a, at a graduate seminary. And he's, oh, you do? I got a story I want to tell you. So the man goes to another table, grabs a chair, and brings it back over and sits down. And inside, Craddock is just like, ugh, just groaning. You know what I'm talking about. The man sticks out his hand and he says, my name is Ben Hooper. I was born not far from here up in these mountains. My mother wasn't married when I was born, and it was awfully hard for me. When I started, my school classmates, you know, when I started school, my, my classmates had special names for me. They made fun of me. They weren't particularly nice. I used to go off by myself at recess and at lunch because of all the taunting. What was worse is when I went into town on Saturday afternoons, I could feel every eye burning a hole right through me, everybody wondering who my father was. When I was about 12, a new preacher came to our church and I would always show up late and, and leave early so that way I didn't have to interact with a lot of people. But one day the preacher said the benediction so fast, 
I didn't, get a, I didn't get out before he got to the back door. So I had to walk by him through the crowd and I could feel every eye on me wondering, who was my father? Just about the time I got to the door, I felt this big hand on my shoulder. And as I was a young man, he, he looks down at me and it was the hand of the preacher looking right there. And, and he says, who are you, son? Whose kid are you? I felt the whole weight of the world on me. Even the preacher is putting me down. But as he looked down at me, he studied me. He looked at me, he studied my face, and then he began to smile with a big sense of recognition. He said, oh, oh, wait a minute. I know who ki- whose kid you are. I see the family resemblance. And I was, I was worried, like, does he really know? And then he goes, you are a son of God. That is who you are. With that, he slapped me on the back and, and said, Kid, you have a great inheritance. God has great things for you in this life. The old man looked across the table at Fred Craddock and said, That was the most important single sentence anyone has ever said to me. With that, he smiled, shook Craddock's hand, stood up, and said, Have a great meal. And walked away. That was when it dawned on Fred Craddock that on two occasions the people of Tennessee had elected an illegitimate son to be their governor. One of them's name was Ben Hooper. What an inheritance he had from God. You see, I'm convinced that God wants to show himself to the world through you and me. That when we put on Christ, who knows what he has in store for our lives. You can't imagine how God wants to show himself through you. Over the years, I've watched God show himself through all sorts of people. Some through how they suffered in, in this life, like Christ suffered, with a willingness to go through it with grace, all for the glory of God. I've seen people through, you know, <coughs> I've seen God through people who have shown me that This is how you die like Christ. I've seen people, (coughs) as they grow older, say or or look and, and be like, well, this is how you grow old like Christ. I've seen people show me this is how you succeed like Christ. I've seen people show me this is how you endure negative things like Christ. This is how you live when everything's going well like Christ. This is how you serve like Christ. You see... When you put on Christ, there's no telling how he's going to show himself through you. When you put on Christ, it is not the hand that you're dealt with that matters, but how you play that hand that counts. In verse 28, Paul implies the sonship idea to a broader, uh, broader audience, broader implications. It's kind of a horizontal uh, effect of, of being called the son of God. There are those coming after Paul teaching that God was only for the Jews or or those who become Jews, uh, they had to become Jews before they accepted Christ and all these different rules and regulations that we talked about previously. But here in verse 28, it's one of the most radical statements in the Bible. It is so revolutionary that we do not have it worked out completely. It is so counter-culture. In the first century context is this. 
Every day a Pharisee, and this is who Paul was at one time, a good Jew prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. And, it, and he would pray this prayer before his feet actually even hit the ground. He would say, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile. I thank you, God, that I was not born a slave. And I thank you, God, that I was not born a woman. In Paul's time, Jewish men thought that they were the chosen people of God, that, that non-Jews were f- you know, like fuel for the fires of hell. They were not even sure women had souls. They debated that at the time. But now in d- direct rejection of those Pharisaic prayers, the Apostle Paul writes these words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free, nor is there male and female. For you all are in Christ Jesus. Now keep in mind, Paul himself had been a Pharisee, which probably means he prayed this very prayer the day he encountered Jesus. He knew exactly what he was saying when they they put these words together in verse 28. The family God is not about divisions and prejudices. The family God is not about skin color. The family of God is not about gender. The family of God is not about politics. The family of God is not about our personal opinion on many different subjects that seem to divide us. I mean, one of the subjects that's dividing us right now, I, I belong to this church communications group on, on Facebook. Uh, they get a lot of great ideas and stuff for, for <coughs> communicating and, and graphics and so forth from it. But one of the things they're talking about right now is, do we go back to church or when we go back to church, do we sing? Because singing and projecting that out brings all the stuff out of your lungs uh, as you sing, and it has the potential to be a spreader of, of germs and so forth. So do you sing? Do you not sing? And there's people that are passionate on both sides. And one thing that I've noticed is in the middle of all the passion, they lack grace. The grace is gone. You can have personal opinions on many different subjects, but we need to have it with grace. It's the same thing going on right now with the, uh, George Floyd and, and what's going on there and, and just with, with, all the, with, with all the looting and, and so forth. Uh, you know, it's almost like George Floyd is, is getting missed in the whole thing. But in the, in the discussions about this, we as Christians need to have grace because it's about unions and inclusions. The Apostle Paul is saying there's, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. He's coming against those who said everyone had to be circumcised to come to God because circumcision tells people apart. Paul comes and says, baptism is the act that brings us together. It breaks down barriers and blurs distinctions in the church. When we get locked in these type of barriers, we end up stereotyping people, right? That's what we're doing right now. We end up blaming whole groups for the fault of the behaviors of the few. The damage and destruction that has been brought to this world because of these attitudes, we can't even begin to describe. And we're thinking about America and all the stuff that's happening right now, but this has been going on for a long time. Think of the Nazis in Europe or the Ku Klux Klan in in America, especially the, the South and so forth, the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. The Chinese massacre of the Tibetans, the killing fields of Cambodia, the massacres of Rwanda, the annihilation of the the Native Americans. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. What human beings have done to each other. 
because of little differences among us that we don't understand, this, this must make God cry. When we consider the massacres and the genocides, the pain and the agony we humans have visited on our brothers and sisters who are not quite like us, it's horrifying. The Apostle Paul says, sons of God who have put on Christ gives no place for these attitudes, for we are one in Christ. The Apostle Paul goes on to to address economic differences. He says neither slave nor free, and and slavery at that time um, had two different types of slavery. When you went to war, uh, and if you were defeated, you became slaves, or you could sell yourself into slavery. It's not like American uh, slavery per se, but it does have some implications there. But the Roman Empire during Paul's time was was, uh, a slave empire. It was built by slaves. As much as 33% of the empire were slaves. Many of the early church leaders were slaves. Think about that. You come to Christ, you go to church, and your slave is up front teaching you. I mean, farms were farmed with slave labor. Roads were built with slave labor. Ships were built with slave labor. You have many, many, we have talked many times about American slavery and, and how the Bible is even used to approve of these despicable actions. We still have a problem today in our society of how we treat someone who doesn't look like us. Whether they're black or Hispanic or Asian or any other culture, as we Christians, we need to, to, uh, to, to realize that there is no slave nor free. There is no skin color. Later in the Roman Empire, one of the major reasons for war was because they needed more slaves. At one, t- at one time, the Roman Empire decided we need all the slaves to dress alike. And that way we know who all the slaves are run around our society. So they implemented this law and got it, or implemented this law and got it going and so forth. And then all of a sudden they looked around and they were like, okay, everybody knows who the slaves are. What if they all gathered together now that they know who, uh, who are slaves? Well, the way they look, what if, what if they all gathered together and come up against us at this point and start a riot and start a, uh, you know, a rebellion? So then they passed another law saying, no, 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 slaves cannot dress alike anymore. Uh, but, but what was interesting is the great economic divider of, of that society was the line between slave and free. If you were a slave your children became slaves. They couldn't marry a free person. You could not own property as a slave because you were the property. You had no rights. Only free people have rights. And along comes Jesus, this radical, with a whole new value system. No economic value lines, no pecking order, no rich or poor or high or low or or powerful or, or weak, no class distinctions in the family God. God does not treat us on the basis of where we live or the size of our paychecks or what influence we have on the community. There are no blue-collar or white-collar sons of God. We are all children of God. Finally, in verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, there is no gender in Jesus Christ. There is no male or female. It's interesting, an English professor walked up to his uh, uh, blackboard in class and he wrote the, uh, some words on the blackboard, women without or woman without 
her man is a savage. And he directed his students to punctuate the sentence correctly. The men wrote, wrote it like this. Woman, comma, without her man, comma, is a savage, implicating the woman needs a man. The women wrote it a little differently. They wrote, woman, comma, without her, comma, man is a savage. (laughs) So you can see how funny the different sides are, right? From their perspective. The first century in their patriarchal society, women were considered inferior. According to Jewish law, they were to not receive instruction about the Jewish law. So they couldn't study the Word of God. So therefore, they couldn't talk in church because they knew nothing about God. So when Paul tells women, uh, you know, in Corinthians, you need to sit down and be quiet, it wasn't because they were women, but it was because they were uneducated about the Jewish law, so therefore they were talking out of turn in church. It wasn't their gender was the issue. Because two chapters later, he's telling women, you know, later in his letter, we call them chapters, He's telling women to prophesy in the church. So which one is it? Sit down and shut up or prophesy? You see what I'm saying? They weren't considered, uh, you know, they weren't considered knowledgeable about God. And Jesus started to change that by allowing women to sit at his feet and learn. He was a radical. But women were not even considered to be reliable witnesses in court. The job of a woman back then. And this is not where I am. This is, <coughs> this is where they were in the first century. The job was, of a woman was to have children and take care of them. That was until Jesus comes onto the scene. What is interesting is that we like to think that we've made real progress in this type of thinking today. But really the ghosts of gender preference, just like skin preferences, are still around us. The state around this world is horrible. In the United States, we'd like to think this problem is not with us. But as you can tell from, from what's going on right now in the news and going on in all these cities, uh, they're protesting in 37 different cities. Uh, you know, last night they did. Well, that problem is still with us. Nine out of ten women who are murdered are killed by men who know them. Usually a husband or a boyfriend Four out of five are murdered at home. Statistics say that a male violence toward women is still an issue. Women are far from receiving equality, even in this country. I mean, you may be sitting right next to your wife today thinking, well, I've treated her well. We have equality in our marriage. We're happy. Well, I'm not saying you haven't. That is one of our goals in life, to be more like Christ and how we treat each other. But as society as a whole, it's still part of a problem. I would think it would make you, you know, women, I think it would make you mad as you watch a show. Look how many times uh, the person who's murdered on a TV show is a woman. Have you ever noticed that when a woman is running from a person who is pursuing her, she is the one who, who seems to always fall down and the man never does. I mean, I would get sick of this and eventually would, would email and start a you know, writing campaign or something to tell them, just cut it out. And it seems the churches are not much better in some ways. I know churches that would not allow a woman to even uh, get up on stage. Of course, unless she's singing in a choir. 
but never to, to preach, never to address the congregation from the pulpit or the platform. Paul says this ought not to be. In Christ, we are all equal. Whatever social divisions exist in the culture should not exist in the church. I think that there are, you know, inability to make that a reality impacts the quality of our trustworthiness, of our message to this society. One of the things that existed in the Old Testament is a thing called the city of refuge. The idea was that these cities would provide sanctuary for someone who killed someone else. Because according to the law of Moses, if you kill my relative, I could pursue you and avenge their blood. So these cities of refuge were set up that if I killed someone by accident, and if I made it to the city of refuge, the person could not take my life as long as I stayed in that refuge. And it gave time for a trial, for a judge, and, uh, you know, in a sense, a jury to rule. I believe that Jesus calls his church, his 21st century children, to be a city of refuge, to be his light from all the distinctions and discriminations and, uh, you know, in this world, in the family of God. Because there is no room for, for prejudice, discrimination, or bigotry of any kind. In his family, everyone is accepted. In his family, everyone is valued. In his family, everyone has a place. Grace given out through faith has made us all children of God and unites us as brothers and sisters that produce a vertical and horizontal oneness that confounds the world and glorifies the Father. No wonder we sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Just look at what grace can do for people in this world. Grace can change lives. Grace enables us to to hear our brothers and sisters who are hurting, who are going through different things from a different perspective that, that we've never felt. Grace enables us to be there for one another. Do you have that grace today? Do you have enough grace in your life to stand up for, for injustice when, when injustice happens? Do you have enough grace in your life to forgive uh, a brother or sister when forgiveness needs to happen? Do you have grace enough to shine like, the, the, like Christ so the world can see who God really is? That's the type of grace that we need in this world. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't, don't delineate yourself. Don't be male or female. Don't be slave or free. You know, don't be all these different things. Just be a child of God who's been baptized into Christ and is clothed in Christ. Just like my two boys. They're clothed in the Orr family. I know I've talked a lot about adoption over the past several weeks, but that, that has really gone into the book of Galatians. Paul is bringing it up, so therefore it relates to me, and that's how I can explain it to you. But my boys are clothed in the Orr family. And I hope that my wife and I represent Christ enough that they're also clothed in Christ because of it. As they become looking like us, they become looking like Christ. That's the ultimate goal. That's the goal in this life, for us to look like Christ, to give people an opportunity to see God. Will you stand up and allow other people 
to see God through you this week, today, next week, next month, in the next year. That's what we want. That's how we can change this world for the better. As we know, the scriptures say, the world's going to get worse, but the kingdom of God here now can get better through you and I, showing God to this world. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray for the grace of, of your Holy Spirit. I pray for the, for the grace to overwhelm us as a, as a Christian body. Of all the different denominations that, that you would just shine out from us and have an effect on our family and friends, have an effect on our, our community.